Huh? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <sighs> you gotta be fucking kidding me! No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 They they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, hmm, they, they didn't stop to think if they should. Yes. What? What, what am I missing? Is there a problem? Uh, hope cleaned. About time, too. I mean, we <clears throat> let the right one in. Oh, oh my God. God. You're fucking kidding me. I, I knew we couldn't trust that interloper. Oh, God. It's all been organized. I can't believe it. There she goes again. She's tidied up and I can't find anything. She blinded me with science. Uh, no, no singing. She even threw out that nest I made for Clark Nova out of chewed up paperbacks and uh, other substances. Oh, thank Christ, God. That thing reeked. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, guys. What? Wait, what's with the. Oh, right. It's because I cleaned up your little clubhouse, isn't it? I had to do something. The dust was hell on my allergies. Look, if I'm going to be stuck here, I don't want to sneeze myself to death. Did you stop and think for a single second? about the damage to our aesthetic. It's irreversible. Like my large, imposing British raincoat. What a bunch of piss babies. Don't lump me in with them. Whatever, I was coming in here to tell you, I found some old mail that looked pretty important. It's got final notice stamped on it in red. Yeah, that's how you know it's vitally important that it be ignored even harder. Ugh. Anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Dear occupant, blah, blah, blah. The city redevelopment agencies identify the TBD shopping plaza, blah, blah, blah. The potential urban blight. And the council will consider condemnation. Condemnation? That's our sole purview. At its next session in July. July? Um, it's December, Any guys. objection or complaint must be filed with the city no later than 30 days from receipt of this letter. Absent any such filing, should a condemnation be made, occupant will have 60 days from the date of determination to vacate the premises. Yours sincerely, yada yada. Well, okay, we've got a month to decide if we want to do anything, but that is only 43,200 minutes. No, we don't. This letter is dated three months ago. I found it under a pile of old Doritos bags. I was saving those. Here's the other letter. Humana, humana, declared condemned in absence of objection or filings from the owner. Demolition is to begin. Wait, wait, wait. This date is today. What? Oh, my oh, God. God. What? 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 Summoning the spirit of David Lynch? But he's not dead yet. Details. Uh, surely you can't mean assassination by atomic super robot. No, don't call me Shirley. I said proper fashion. Denial, avoidance, and escapism. Ooh, my three favorite Ds. Of course that's your solution. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to the only appropriate means of anesthetizing oneself from the apocalypse. Cartoons! Yeah. Adult cartoons. Ooh. I like it. Post-apocalyptic adult cartoons. What? Ooh. Uh, uh, bullshit. I don't buy it. There's no such thing, okay? <laughs> That's where you're wrong, my young 
apprentice. In 1977, Ralph Bakshi released Wizards, which is what you get when the underground comics of the 70s meets an independent animator whom 20th Century Fox is armed with a budget big enough to keep him and a stable of artists allegedly swimming in various psychoactive substances. Allegedly. It's got fairies versus mutants, magic versus technology, anti-fascists versus Nazis, all set millions of years into a post-nuclear apocalypse future, and features backgrounds from the legendary grimdark graphic artist Ian Miller, without whom Warhammer 40,000 would never have existed. Same. Hey, all of you know Ian Miller is an artistic genius, and Games Workshop is a national treasure. A horrible, brutal national treasure. Oh, sure. Like you need more national treasures. You've got everyone else's national treasures in the British Museum. Holy shit, this sounds amazing. Better than what I see on the internet. Right? What are we waiting for? Put it on. Brownies, anyone? Ooh, I'll take two. <laughs> I'm not taking any food from you, weirdos. Uh, I'll have another one. Huh? Oh, uh, I, I wouldn't eat quite so. Um, oh, you've already eaten the whole thing. <laughs> oh, well. But what about that? We'll deal with it later. That's what you said about my store. And now you're gonna... Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a spiffy video store long since shuttered. Past the clean shelves, empty save for, well, nothing really. Beyond the spotless bat-wing doors guarding the sepulchre where once was kept the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembled to scrutinize those films rumored to drive their viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears up upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the Brotherhood of the Brotherhood of the Brotherhood of the Brotherhood of the Brotherhood Please be seated. Now, before we get started, uh, what? <laughs> You're introducing wizards? Oh, yes. Uh, sorry, I got distracted because for some reason I can no longer recall what color my name smells like. <laughs> uh, don't forget to warn people, we have salty language, adult themes kids, turn this shit off, and ask mum and dad before you go any further. Mmm, salty. Uh, where are the Pringles? I could murder a can of curry flavor Pringles. Oh, that sounds amazing. Wait, yes, on to wizards. Hope, you're Master Castigator this time. Why me? I don't even want to be here. I think you're the only one who can read in a straight line right now. <laughs> Fine. I'll do the thing, as long as you promise to deal with the whole condemnation situation. Fine, whatever. Read the list of charges. <clears throat> charges against the film wizards include gratuitous fairy nipples, gratuitous Hitler, overuse of stock film, overuse of hasty rotoscoping, flagrant abuse of wah-wah guitar, shameless inclusion of OCR typefaces, bigotry against radioactive mutants. They're not inherently evil just because they're mutants. Depiction of an overly phallic wizard's tower. Overuse of exposition for expensive, difficult-to-animate things happening somewhere off-screen. Being about as edgy as a well-manicured hedgerow. Caving to the whims of George Lucas, 
in removing war from the title. Extreme lack of subtlety. Heavy more of a vibe than an actual story, per se. Uh, actual trigger warnings for this film include fascism, Nazism, violence, misogyny, and giant fucking pencil eraser sized fairy nipples. Thank you, Auntie Hope. Now. Wait. What happened to our roll call? We're supposed to do roll call. I'm Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. Repositor Andre, voice from the outer world. That's not how you do it. I'm Profligator Daniel, possessor of the word. Scrutinizer Zachariah, guardian of the door. Verifier Andy, master illuminator. Ahem. Uh, oh, yeah. Auntie Hope, keeper of the books. What is this, an episode of fucking Voltron? Fine. Sinquisitor Ethan, keeper of the lenses. There. Done. Now, who wants to read the first part of our summary of Ralph Bakshi's 1977 animated classic, Wizards? Whoa. Okay, this brownie just kicked in. All right, I'll take the first part. All right. You know, we're told this is an animated film. But right after all this hyper-futuristic OCR credit text... We start out with a live action opening. There's big old leather books sitting on a cracked hard pan. All right, this is a story within a story, par for the course with us. Anyway, this book tells us the history of the future. Our story takes place 10 million years after a devastating nuclear war on Earth. With no sunlight during that time, any surviving humans mutated into, well, mutants goes without saying that said mutants are evil. This is a kid's film, after all. Then again, not far into the film, there are also fairy prostitutes eliciting mutant clients, which makes you wonder what kind of parents thought that this was suitable for young viewers. Mine. That's whose. Mine too. Oh, God. 70s parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Another shocking development after the already shocking nuclear war, shocking, I tell you, we learn about the existence of magical creatures who have been living in hiding during human times. Look around you. They're probably right there. You just can't see them. Anyhow, after humans nuke themselves into near oblivion, the magical creatures use the opportunity to spread out a little. A little breathing room, if you will. Don't worry. That's what we big kids call foreshadowing. Moving on, we're told all the fairies, elves, dwarves, pixies, gnomes, pretty much the full cast of any Brian Froud book you can think of, resettle the less radioactive parts of the Earth's surface. The largest of these kingdoms is an idyllic land called Montagar. Why? Because fuck you, that's why. Nuclear Holocaust has its perks. And oh, are they perky. Just wait, you'll see. Anyhow, Montagar's society runs on magic. The only technology is nature. It appears magic is much better than technology ever was. So this is an underground comics reference, and this is uh, this is a, a big nod to Von Baudet's Cobalt 66. Um, this entire setting may as well have been in Cobalt 66. But yeah, Von right. Baudet is one of the, the underground comics artists at the time, who was actually friends with Ralph Bakshi, apparently, um, before he died in 1975 from autoerotic asphyxiation. But, but well, the film was in production then. Anyway, um, <clears throat> one way or the other, 
Oh, what a way to go. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I guess more people are into that than we even realize. They, uh, you, can, you can see a lot of nods to Bode's work throughout this whole thing with, like, you know, uh, Cheech Wizard or Erotica. Those are all coming. Should I continue? Yeah. All right. After 3,000 years of peace, Delia, queen of the fairies, falls into a trance and wanders back to her hut, where she gives birth to two twins. Not three What's twins? It? No, two twins. <laughs> that, is, that is not how birth works. You the know number of the twins, twins shall be two, and no more than two. And two three shall write out. Did anyone writing this film ever give birth? That is not how it works. You never fall into a trance and magically have babies. Hurts like fuck. One is a large uh, Germanic fellow who looks like he might be into bodybuilding. The other is a small Danny DeVito-esque looking child. I feel like I've seen this movie before. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. One's a normal, angelic, chubby-looking bubba straight off the Gerber label. The other's a gaunt, creepy mutant with red eyes who lacks all flesh on his forearms. Yep, just the good old Radius and Ulna hanging right out there. You're probably asking how he's going to move his hands without any of those muscles. Shut up and don't ask dumb questions, kid. It's a cartoon. Magic. Here These comes two... that charge of lack of subtlety, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And in accordance with cartoon law, of course, one of these twins will be evil. Which one, though? We'll have to wait and see. It's that was a, a big twist in the in Such a mystery. Danny DeVito was actually the good guy, right? Right. These two are the eponymous wizards of the film's title and are, of course, mortal enemies destined to kill each other. The good twin is named Avatar, and he's kind-hearted and very skilled in magic. Yet later, he's also a dirty old man with a voice like Columbo. His mutant brother is Black Wolf, who likes to torture animals alone in the woods. We don't have any insight into what Mom was thinking by naming him Black Wolf, but even if you're not a nominative determinist, you've got to know that there are some serious villain vibes with that name. Black Wolf is also good with magic, but he has a hard-on for technology. World War II technology, to be precise. In case you missed it, this is more foreshadowing. Anyway, at some point, when they're basically the wizard equivalent of teenagers, Mom dies and Avatar and Black Wolf have a duel. Avatar wins. Black Wolf leaves, but vows to one day take over the kingdom of Montagar to make this planet where mutants rule. We'll assume he also said it'd be one where fairies drool. They were teenagers after all. It's also worth noting that all this exposition is told through a sequence of mostly monochrome still images drawn in pastels, not actual cell animation, and is narrated by what sounds like a cataclysmically stoned Janis Joplin voice double. How stoned, though. I mean, this woman is <laughs> bored as fuck. Oh my god, yeah. She looks like... You Her know. voice monochrome. <laughs> now, I, I think I read that this is actually Ralph Bakshi's wife who did the video I, on this. Yeah, I think you're right. I read that too. I think she's going for sort of portentous, but she comes across as just very slowly and boredly reading the lines. Fast forward 3,000 years, Black Wolf apparently rules his own kingdom. A grim 
dark land of grim, dark backgrounds drawn by the king of grim, dark fantasy art, Ian Miller. Appropriately called Scorch, which for some reason is spelled with a T. The T is how you know it's evil. Is T evil? I'm oh, asking sure. the Brit. Blame the T. <laughs> well, I mean, like... it was the cause for the opium wars. I thought it was the whole taking over India and subjugating them just so that you could have hot leaf water for breakfast. You, you don't need to discuss historical misunderstandings. Dried leaves boiled in water? India. It was China, too. <laughs> That's true. But I thought they were more green tea than the black tea. Yeah, but did they have a flag? <laughs> I don't believe they did. No flag, no country. Right. Here at about five minutes in, we have our first sequence of actual cell animation in the movie so far. Black Wolf, now a gray-beard, gray-skinned tyrant, still with fleshless forearms, is seated on a throne so evil-looking it would make Skeletor cringe. He issues a kill order to a trio of assassins. These are mutant robots. Which are they? Mutants or robots? Both. Wouldn't that make them cyborgs? Living tissue of a metal endoskeleton. Uh, probably best not to think too hard about it. Anyways, the assassins are charged with the duty of stalking and killing believers in magic. Only one of these guys looks even marginally competent. Necron 99, the red uniformed radio antenna headed guy with the sinister yellow eyes from the movie poster. Mounted on a bipedal mutant blob horse. The three assassins ride off through Scorch, past the aforementioned ferry hookers, through a barbed wired no man's land, sort of a fantasy DMZ which contains the ghost of Puff the Magic Dragon, and, more foreshadowing, an army mustering for war. Until the backgrounds change to something less grimdark and more magical smurf for us. Presumably, this means he's reached Montagar. Now in the land of fairies, Necron 99 ventilates a low-rent Papa Smurf reading a manifesto talking about technology to a group of children. While elsewhere, the less cool assassins kick down a door and machine gun a room full of elven aristocrats signing a treaty. All this murder is accompanied by a groovy lounge jazz soundtrack, which is what you'd want too if you were a callous, cynical, mutant assassin gunning down garden gnomes in the far future. A while later, Necron 99 stakes out a position high on a hill looking down on a pair of elven warriors who themselves are mounted on slightly less sinister looking bipedal blob horses. After Necron 99 snipes one, a chase sequence ensues. Necron 99 pursues Weehawk, the elf, across the Smurf forest and through some fern gullies, blasting away with his submachine gun as the soundtrack blasts away with a Mugen wah-wah guitar prog rock soundtrack. Weehawk wheels his horse, whips out a bow and arrow. Wait, doesn't that still count as technology? Nah. And puts a shaft through the brain pan of Necron 99's blob horse. If you're still under delusion that this is a kid's cartoon, you should note that there's a lot of blood and popped eyeballs out here. Necron 99, now Sans Horse, stalks through the forest and finds Weehawk praying over the corpse of his own blob horse. How it died is anyone's guess. Yeah, really. We we don't <laughs> see the we don't see anything happen to that horse. Like we don't yeah. see fucking anything, and suddenly it's dead. Maybe it had a stroke. Who knows? 
Necron 99 somehow a master of concealment despite being dressed in a neon scarlet onesie. <laughs> onesie, yeah, no doubt. Readies his SMG, but he gives himself away by stepping on a twig. Ah, snap. Weehawk whips out a sword, charges into assault range, and he and the assassin tumble off a cliff and into the drink. Bubble cut to an extremely phallic, crooked dong of a wizard's tower dangling off a cliff over a river, penisly. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying it's phallic? Uh, Just a little dickish. (laughs) Just a smidge. Uh, I think they cocked up the animation a bit there. (laughs) Just a wee bit. Just the tip, though. Uh, There's something you might want to, uh... Excuse me, we're having a conclave in here. Kindly fuck off. There are some gentlemen outside with some paperwork. They're wearing suits. Tell them to go away. That's a thing. I can't. They have a manila envelope. Those fiends. Andre, why don't you set your atomic super robot on them? Uh, (laughs) Well, uh... Here's the thing. Uh, remember how I told you I downloaded the entire internet into Robbie? Oh my god, you did. That's not gonna be good. Like I said before, do you want an Ultron? Because that's how you get an Ultron. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, can't you just have Robbie walk over there and intimidate them? Um, no, not really. Well, what's the problem then? Well, I asked it to start generating AI art of the strip mall, of the dams. Uh, it's the TBD shopping plaza. How many times do I got to- AI art? How very dare you. I'm Master Illuminator. I'll handle all the art we need, you traitor. Uh, it was an experiment. <laughs> I, well, nothing to worry about. All he started doing was generating dot matrix printouts of cats and, and, and porn. After he ran through all that gatefold paper, he ground his gears until he overheated and shut down. Did you try turning it off and on again? Yeah. Duh. Watch. My god, it's full of porn. See? This is always Clark Nova. Oh god. See, that's just what I'm talking about. It would work. Hi, Crumb, you're right. We don't have to intimidate them. We can just drive them off in confusion and disgust. Clarky, Clark Nova, here, boy. This better be important. I have some important nodding off to do. Who's a good boy, then? Who wants a treat? I've got some uncut bug powder just for you, little buggy. Oh, oh, is it me? Am I the good boy? Oh, look at his little legs. So cute. Oh, really? Ugh. Now, okay, I just want you to go out front to where those men are and start reading the Dr. Benway Operates bit from Naked Lunch for them. Do you think you can do that for me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Give me a bump first. No, no, no bumps until you do the thing. Go on. Christ, Charlie, would you look at the size of that cockroach? Damn. That lavatory's been locked for three solid hours. I think they're using it in an operating room. Benway picks up a toilet plunger and advances on the patient. Make an incision. Gonna massage the heart. I've locked the door. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. What about Clark Nova? Hmm? He's still out there. All alone. Out in the cold. No? Nobody tearing up? 
Nobody? If there aren't any further interruptions, let's get back to the conclave at hand. I've got an interruption. Where'd you hide the booze? I didn't understand this movie at all, but I still came up with a themed cocktail. I call it a weapon of mass destruction, or a WMD for short. Ooh, what's in it? Mountain Dew and moonshine, garnished with a Twinkie, since you can probably find all those after a nuclear apocalypse. And it has that fun, glowy, green nuclear waste color. <laughs> Weapon of ass destruction. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Back to the conclave at hand. <laughs> at the mightily erected Tower Phallus, we meet again Avatar, now a stunted, cigar-chomping middle-aged man. He hangs out with the president of the kingdom, Montagar. Wait, wait, hang on. It's a kingdom, and they have a president. But he wears a harlequin mask and his daughter's a princess. What the fuck are they trying to say here? Is it like the UK? Royalty and parliamentary democracy? Better it's a cartoon. Clowns. Just stop asking questions and roll with it. But I have so many questions. Shush, shush, shush. Ah, fine. Anyhow... Avatar is hanging out with the ahem, president and his daughter, the half-fairy princess Eleanor, up in the mushroom tip of his dick tower. Eleanor has crinkly fairy wings, an entourage of birds, and an outfit that looks like it came from Fredericks of Hollywood. It looks more like that episode of TNG where, where they try to kill Wesley for breaking a window. And they go to this planet and everyone's just wearing handkerchiefs. <laughs> Really what was it called? Does. Justice. Justice. It's in, it's in season one. Oh, I remember that. That was like the horniest <laughs> episode of TNG. <laughs> but just saying a lot. There are a lot of horny episodes uh, that yeah. first season. <laughs> yeah. Fully functional. I think they had they had the budget to, to costume about eight people, and they had to costume 30. Like, <laughs> Handkerchiefs for everyone. Oh, my. They, they, they conned it by saying, oh, it's a very liberal and sexually free society. Unless right. you break the window, then we're going to fucking kill you. <laughs> right. Remember the perky we mentioned before? Here they are. The perky nips on the animated character is something you just can't unsee. Her outfit could only possibly be more revealing if it was a couple of sequins and a cork. Those been... nips could cut glass. <laughs> like pencil erasers, I'm telling <laughs> oh you. Oh, my God. It's hard to keep track of her expositional dialogue here due to the highly distracting amount of cheesecake. But frankly, we think that's more the writer's fault than ours. No, really. No, really. <laughs> no, really. Really. Really, really. I mean, just dear Lord, it's easier to keep eye contact with Elvira. What little we're able to follow is that apparently the president and Avatar are debating whether to keep up with Black Wolf in the arms race before Avatar reminds everyone that science and technology were outlawed millions of years ago. We also learn Avatar is <clears throat> training Eleanor to become a fully fledged fairy. But what we see in their relationship leaves the kind of training pretty open to interpretation. He goes into a monologue about the before times while Necron 99 climbs the vine veins or vines viney veins up the side of tower phallus wouldn't that be the uh, shaft <laughs> uh yeah yes i don't know if any of you have seen disenchanted on um netflix but avatar looks just like the king from disenchanted the yeah, red hair the giant really cigar does. yeah he does 
As Avatar smokes a cigar with his toes, he transitions us back into more of that series of pastel still image exposition pieces with the board slash stoned woman narrator. We learned that Black Wolf spent millennia studying the black arts. Nice. Black arts? Who'd ever have guessed that someone with a name like Black Wolf would study black arts? And has been gathering an army of mutants and evil magical creatures like orcs, goblins, trolls, etc. All managed by demonic generals called up from hell. So you're saying he's managed a wholesale recreation of the U.S. military. This all sounds pretty ominous, but apparently victory eluded them because they get too easily bored during the battle and wander off because they lacked motivation and inspiration. This leads us to a cell animated vignette with a couple of Black Wolf soldiers. These aren't magical creatures. Presumably these are mutant humans because they're in uniforms and porcine gas masks. Little nod to Black Sabbath's war pigs there for sure. Oh, oh, this is the notorious they killed Fritz bit. They killed Fritz! Those oh, lousy, stinking yellow fairies! Uh, this is uh, probably, actually, I'm going to guess it's Ralph Bakshi making a very thinly veiled complaint about the poor reception of his earlier, very adult animated feature, Fritz the Cat. This is an X-rated animated feature from <laughs> 1970 or 71 or something. Anyway, just so you know, I have family who are closely involved with Zap Comics. Um, remember you mentioned Reading Zap? Well, one of the founders yeah. was S. Clay Wilson, who was one of my dad's good friends. And then my stepmom and he were hooked up all through the 70s, and then she split with him. But anyway... Um, uh, like they they knew Robert Crumb, and the conflict arose from the adaptation of Crumb's Fritz the Cat comic into the film. It's all a bunch of drama. Everybody knows Robert Crumb was hard to work with. I mean, even contemporary people. There's a lot of people who say Robert Crumb is just a very difficult creative partner. He is a freak. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's subjective. The term subjective, but <laughs> long, you know, he's he's also a creative genius in a lot of ways too. But anyway, Bakshi actually voices the character Fritz here. Although he goes uncredited. Um, and I, I actually, I think this is a pretty funny little piece of sketch comedy. However, out of place it might seem in the overall narrative of the film. Um, anybody who wants to find it, just look for uh, They Killed Fritz Wizards on YouTube and have a little chuckle. It is really funny. Once this piece is over, we're back to the still image pastels with narrative exposition. Black Wolf sends his minions to dig up artifacts from the radioactive ruins. 10 million years in the future, there wouldn't be any artifacts left, just a strip of dirt in the fossil record, but hey, this is fantasy, right? Which he uses to recreate the equivalent of the WW2 war machine. Tanks, fighter planes, bombers, machine guns, and a secret weapon. In the, in the grim, grim darkness, darkness of, of the far, far future, future, there is, there is only, only war. war. But we don't find out what the secret weapon is yet, because we cut back to the chamber in the glands of Tower Phallus. As Avatar concludes his monologue, Necron 99, who's now standing on the terrace, casually machine guns the president. Kill them dead. It's the Scorch motto. Avatar subdues the assassin with some right flash magic and shit, and Eleanor rips and tears at the body in what is supposed to be some kind of simultaneously infantilized and sexualized rage or something. Weehawk shows up just a bit too late, sword limp in hand, and cops to failing everyone. Well, Weehawk, you ain't wrong. You just flaccid. I swear this has never happened to me before. It's never happened. <laughs> 
A flashing red light leaves the corpse of Necron 99 and floats across a bunch of, frankly, awesome Ian Miller backdrops, meaning, presumably, Necron 99's electronic soul is headed back to Scorch, where it's picked up by a bank of computers monitored by Larry the Mutant Lizard Person. Larry becomes very excited and leaves for Black Wolf's throne room. Black Wolf is seated on his Skeletor throne, which is mounted over a giant glowing red swastika. As he magically makes a pair of skulls dance for his amusement. Subtlety be damned. Just in case you still weren't sure who the villain of the piece is. I guess subtlety is for cowards. Huh, Ralphie? Larry the Mutant Lizard person schleps in to tell his master that the death of Necron 99. This is all according to Black Wolf's evil plan, trademark, to assassinate the president of the free states. Wait, what happened to Montagar? Black is this, Wolf. Is this like the UK? Like or it's UK, <laughs> Britain, British Isles, Scotland, England. Like you don't know what's what. Is that what's going on here? Don't worry, nobody knows what to call it. We just refer to anybody from there as a North Atlantic Islander. <laughs> Black Wolf exits. Yes, he hisses every S, just to make sure you know he's evil, just in case you somehow missed it, to oversee the production lines turning out war machines and gloat some megalomaniacal monologue. As Black Wolf does the supervillain thing, Larry the Mutant Lizard person helps himself to big hunks of flesh from a carcass hanging nearby, on which is engraved a Star of David. Fuck. Really? I guess even 10 million years in the future, anti-Semitism is still a thing. Yeah, that that tracks. I mean, they, they really want you to know that there are some themes here, and in case you missed it, they're alluding to certain persons from history. You might not have caught it, but there's actually some subtle symbolism going on with swastikas everywhere. Oh. You well. mean Hitler? <laughs> Nazis? No? What? Maybe? Hmm? It's subtle. It's so subtle. After another subtle, we barely notice it. <laughs> Subtlety! Subtlety! After another sketch comedy bit between a couple war pigs, Black Wolf assembles his army to give them a speech. The cell animated war pigs, orcs, goblins, mutants, and demons are joined by hastily rotoscoped stock footage of Crusader Knights, Zulu warriors, and for some reason, a spooky organist belting out some minor chords. I think that might have been from the original, like, uh, silent film version of Phantom of the Opera, actually. I think I recognize that one. Yeah, and I think the footage was probably ripped off from El Cid and Shaka Zulu. I think there's there's more than a couple of mainstream films. That I, think I, footage from. I think I recognize some footage from uh, The Vikings, too, which was that uh, old um, Ernest Borgnine and uh, Kirk Douglas Viking movie. Oh, is that the one where he says, I'm not an animal? That's right. No, that's, that's Spartacus. Yeah, I don't recognize Spartacus. anything because yeah, right. this whole thing is fucking confusing. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't need to worry, though, because I'm sure the original creators of all of these works will be fully mentioned in the credits and given the, the appropriate recompense for all of this. Oh, yeah. oh, of course. The most compelling things about this are the backgrounds by Ian Miller, when they get used at least, because most of the rest of the backgrounds are stock footage close-ups of dry ice clouds. Stick some steam in. Stick some steam in there for the background. You don't have anything for this bit. Put some steam in there. It'll be fine. 
Black Wolf Isaps a couple pixie hostages into running the hand crank dynamo of his secret weapon trademark, which is apparently just a movie projector and shows tinted stock footage of old Nazi propaganda films. They just show them movies. Yes. Haven't we established the deleterious effects of Cinemania? No. Actually, what are we... What are, what are, Moving on. Is it a magically enhanced movie projector? Do the pixie slaves make it more magical? However it works, it whips Black Wolf's minions into a frenzy. The Tolkien-esque map that appears next shows the advancing arrows, which presumably mean Black Wolf's army is finally making some strategic gains. We cut to... How did it get back in here? Way to guard the door, guardian of the door. I'm not your fucking doorman. Oh, Clarky. Oh, yes. Who's your good buggy? Who's your good buggy? Want your bone now? Yeah? Yeah? Want your bone now? Is you good? Is you good? Yeah, is you good? Yeah. The men from before! They're back, and this time they've got some bulldozers with them. Bulldozers? Surely you can't be serious. Hey, I'm serious, and don't call me. Shut, Shut up! Bulldozers, huh? I know just how to handle this. Quick, everyone, put on your robes and grab the towels. Don't forget the cocktails, Gavnit! I got you! Stop! You vandals, you homewreckers, you half-crazed visitors! You can't do this. We have rights. We had no notice. Nobody told us. Bloody sneaking, bloody bureaucrats. Quizlings, Huguenots. We had three months to do something, anything. You could have filed something. You could have showed up to a city council meeting and made your case. You were sent letter after letter via registered mail, which means we have legal documentation that you were notified. You could have chosen to do anything you chose to do nothing, and that's a choice too. Much as I hate to give you a brutal reality check, this is on you guys. We reject your reality and assert our own in its stead. If wholesale rejection of reality in favor of fabrication works for the Republican Party, it'll work for us too. Three cheers for making shit up. Pip pip. Hurrah! Pip pip. Hurrah! Pip pip. Hurrah! These fucking guys. Look. Guys, I feel for you. Losing your clubhouse sucks. Clubhouse? How Look, we're a secret society doing vital work. Vital, I tell you. Nothing is more important than stamping out Cinemania. Unfortunately, yes, sometimes you also have to do the boring bureaucratic stuff too. It's like brushing your teeth. But like, organizationally brushing your teeth. Okay, whatever, you get what I mean. It's boring, it's not entertaining, but bad stuff happens if you don't do it. And by the way, I'm a fan of cinema, and I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast. But sweet! Oh, 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 I told you You mean we've been recording this? It's fun, guys. Really. I also have a job to do, and so does this work crew. There are other places you can hold your meetings. Let's get up out of the mud. It's not the end of the world. We beg to differ. You have no idea what's under that building. You shut it down, it'll be like dropping a bomb on the city. Sure. 
you can go ahead and quote Ghostbusters at me if it'll make you feel better. You're ignoring the worst thing. Knocking this place down will completely destroy our aesthetic. <laughs> We're, we aren't going anywhere, you fascist pigs. Yeah. I'm a city attorney. I'm not. Oink. Oink. Hey, boss. I'm calling a smoke break for my team. <sighs> yeah, go ahead. Set him down, fellas. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Ha! We'll see who rusts first. Yeah, I've seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, too. Seen? It's a book, you Philistine! Actually, it was a radio drama first. The book came second, and then the TV show... Actually, it was a graphic novel before it was a hologram, and then it was a... That's what you sound like. You know what I mean. And if you actually did read the book, you'd remember this strategy didn't work for Arthur Dent either. Now, why would you think it's going to work for you? Fair. Can we at least have a few minutes to let it sink in? Besides, we just poured our cocktails. Yeah! 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 yeah. That's a beverage. Yeah, it's gonna be much easier for drunk. Oh. You know what? Sure, fine. You have till the cops get here. Now. Back to the conclave at hand. Who's going to read the next part of our summary? Well, since I'm the only one who's not stoned out of my gourd, I guess I'll do it. All right, we cut to pixies arming themselves and flying off in clouds of stardust. And then again to a World War I-style trench line occupied by elves and stalmhelms. Crusty old elf veteran with a titty pipe counsels his young apprentice, Peewittle, who's about to get to his first taste of war. The kid's nervous. The old bastard, smug in the knowledge that Black Wolf's incompetent troops will again break and run, just as they always have. Battle is shortly joined, and we know it must be battle. The funk bassline and waka waka guitar is a dead giveaway. The orcs, goblins, mutants, and disco ball shield wizarding lizardmen advance. None of the elves seem all that terrified by the appearance of hastily rotoscoped tanks and red-eyed SS stormtroopers. Shields, swords, and arrows have apparently been sufficient to win the day in prior engagements. Just before the first volley of arrows is loosed, however, Black Wolf unleashes his secret weapon, trademark. The magically enhanced movie projector that turns the animated backgrounds of the movie into Nazi propaganda films. This overwhelms the senses of the elves in the trenches, and their primitive weapons fall from their nerveless fingers. The ravening hordes of Black Wolf are able to cut down their foes as they stand stupefied. Clearly overcome with Cinemania. Indeed. We last see Peewittle as he cowers at the bottom of the trench, trembling with shell shock as he watches the lifeblood of his mentor run streaming down the trench wall. And uh, how old were you when you first saw this? Like, ten? Likewise. That explains a lot. <laughs> totally does. Cut to Tower Phallus and Montagar where Avatar has finished reprogramming the robot mutant Necron 99 for non-violence, changing his name to Peace. You just have to admire the Montgarian optimism. Avatar has learned from 99 that the secret weapon, trademark, is called a dream machine. Queen Eleanor and Weehawk want to set out to destroy the projector and save the world, but Avatar isn't quite finished yet being a dirty old man. He instructs Eleanor to pose on his bed for a couple hours so he can ogle her while he makes up his mind. Some training, right? There's a really weird relationship between these two, right from the start. What are you talking about? This reminds me of my relationship with most of my teachers in college. <laughs> and that definitely explains a lot. Yeah, I did no. I did only go to state. 
yeah, there's there's definitely uh, that. This is a joke. Like the the level of uh, exploitation of a very young woman by a very old man. It's like this is supposed to be a joke. Everybody, <laughs> we are all laughing at this funny joke. Ha 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 ha. Grooming. Do, do we ha, know ha, how ha, old ha. Eleanor is though? I mean, well, she I mean, could be young, but she may not be. She, yeah, I mean, like, who knows? We don't really find out her age. It's never really said. But it's still it's still pretty gross. You know, like, having a 60-year-old man hooked up with, like, a 22-year-old woman is still pretty gross. There's there's a big balance, balance of power differential there. And that's kind of yeah. what makes it gross. She's infantilized, but is she young? That's a, that's a good point. We'll anyway. never know. Weehawk says his goodbye to family and tribe in a series of touching scenes where he's surrounded by lots of expensive-to-animate people, so it's all done as a far easier slideshow, with the same bored-sounding voiceover lady from the start. Similarly, Eleanor bids farewell to her buxom nudist friends in their grotto, reminding them that since her father, the president, is dead, she's going to be their queen. How exactly that line of succession works is far from clear, but, but as we're talking about people who have not yet mastered the technology of pants... Their system of governments makes about as much sense as Naboo. By the time everyone's ready to go, Avatar has the robot assassin fully reprogrammed and ready to join the good guys in their fully righteous quest. Though he does warn the newly named Peace that if he fucks around, he's gonna find out, as Avatar is fully prepared to kill him in ways that will <clears throat> take 20 years to kill ya, and you'll be screaming for death in the first five seconds. The forces of goodness, everyone. At any rate, this showdown between brothers is likely to be a grudge match considering that Avatar won the last time. Avatar has no hesitation in saying, I'm going to brutally torture you for decades or more if you mess with me in any way. I mean, he's supposed to be a lovely peace and love flower fairy kind of a guy, but he really isn't. You know, after his mom died and his brother became like an evil freaking fascist tyrant, when that he kind became, of he was born that, evil. I think I, I think that kind of wore on him a bit. Well, no, he became a tyrant. He was always evil, but, you know, it's just like your mom dies. Your brother, who you don't like, you know, tries to try challenges you to a duel. You beat him and then he goes slinks off and becomes this like fascist dictator. And meanwhile, he's just like. Yeah, fuck my life. You know, <laughs> there's something to be said there too about like you know determinism. Like, oh yeah, this kid's evil and bad, so we'll you know we'll just let it leave him out in the woods to die. Oh wait, he's torturing rabbits, you know, and then just constantly reminding him how bad he is. He's you know telling him he was born evil. What the hell is kid gonna do? Turn evil? I don't know. Which is worse, somebody who is evil because they were told from you know literally birth that they're evil, so they stay evil, or somebody who starts good and then starts doing evil shit? Which is worse? <laughs> Well, you know, it was showing that his mother was all, like, sick and bedridden his entire life, really, and, you know, was just kind of left to be a free-range kid, so, you well, know. Well, that's not an excuse. I mean, so That's was, not so an excuse. Yeah, but Avatar stayed near his mom and tried to, like, you know help her and amuse her and stuff like that well there's a lot of reading between the lines there sort of my, my whole point i'm not i'm not trying to be an apologist for black wolf but my, my whole point being kids are going to do what you program them to do if you tell them they're evil from the minute they're born then they're going to be fucking evil they're going to live down to your expectations and my you know? point is that hippie free-range parenting 
causes kids to become fascist tyrants. <laughs> it's well it's definitely the it's definitely true that it's not the case that Avatar is totally all good and Black Wolf is totally all bad. There's a little bit of overlap going on here. There's They're no gray area as... with Black Wolf. He is all bad. There is nothing you can see about him that's that you say is good. With Avatar, he's he's a blend. There's a lot of gray there. But there's... well, I mean, they they try to add some shading to Black Wolf later, but it doesn't really work that well, as we oh. shall see. Yeah, well, if you add shading to something that's already completely black. Anyway. <laughs> Sing us a song, Avatar urges Eleanor to pass away their long journey. As far as he's concerned, she has all the utility of an iPod with tits. In a musical interlude, one of those tinkly minor key 70s nature girl songs starts playing. No doubt sung by an earnest blonde vegetarian and an Afghan. This, this is accompaniment to scenes of evil forces on the march across the land. Black Wolf's boys have been hard at work. Villages in ruins, prisoners marching along in lines, that kind of thing. In an unintentionally hilarious aside, a child's fairy asks Mommy Fairy what's going on and is informed that there's been a war and their side is lost. The enemy has weapons and technology. We have just love. It's supposed to sound deep and meaningful, but basically she's admitting that militarily, the good guys are all fucked. Flowers and sunshine don't count for much against a mechanized infantry. Oh, what happened to the only technology we need is nature. Well, you know, some kind of technology, and I'm not saying it's nature is making swords and bows and arrows and breastplates and helmets. And it's, oh, yeah. Metallurgy is, is still a technology. Bows and yeah, bows exactly. And manufacturing of tools is still technology. Thank exactly. you. Yeah, they're fine to use technology when it suits them. They're fine to use the riddle of steel given to them by Krom. Crom, Crom, Crom laughs at your god, laughs on from his mountain. <laughs> and if you won't help me, to hell with you. To hell with you. <laughs> well, it's about time we pause for some hard-hitting satire, which says things has a message. A couple of war pigs are breaking into a church-like structure. They have no idea what it is. It's just weird stuff to them. And I mean, it's literally stuff. The church is a warehouse filled with junk of all eras, which is being collected together reverently. See? That's saying something about the nature of organized religion, isn't it? Get it? They need to capture the priest because, you know, you need God on your side or something. That's a quote, by the way. Get it? It's like satirical on stuff. Satire. Like I said, subtlety. Yeah, this, this is... is the point where the film is absolutely setting out to say, we are saying things in a satirical way that you need to be aware of. And it's really hammering it home. Isn't that she uh, Jewish? Yeah, he's a, he's a crimchak. Ah, right. Well, anyways, the priests turn out to be a couple of diminutive Jewish stereotypes, and the soldiers openly refer to Black Wolf as their Fuhrer at this point. Yikes. They want the priests to take all these annoying prisoners off their hands, because they can't be arsed to feed them or house them or any of that weak-ass shit. Before answering, the priests need to do their sunset prayers, and they launch into a slapstick vaudeville routine which parodies Catholicism, Judaism, and the Marx Brothers in equal measure. It's all getting very meaningful and saying important things. Anyway, after five hours of this, the soldiers get bored and machine gun everyone, then blow up the church, put themselves in it. There's a capital M message in here. Somewhere. Was anyone else a little bit uncomfortable at this point? This was, this was a moment in a film where I was a little bit disturbed, maybe. Yeah, it, it did not. This this did not feel good. 
did not age well. Yeah, no. yeah. It's it's one of those things where I'm not sure if you're cringing because the material is bad or cringing because it's not it's completely unsubtle. But yeah, they felt the same way about the scene with the two uh, cops in the synagogue and Fritz the cat. It's a really similar emotional feel of of deep cringe. Yeah, ickiness. Well, in his clockwork nightmare fortress, Black Wolf visits his girlfriend who appeared out of nowhere and asked if she would be giving birth soon, which is explained never. The intention is to soften Black Wolf a bit. The thing is, he just wants to make a better world for his people outside of the radioactive mutants on they live in. See, he just needs Liebenstrom. He's simply annexing lands that are necessary for the expansion of his nationalistic rebel of... Oh boy, let's not dive into that one too deeply. Yeah, it's all about uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mentioned I'm also Polish. But like, like I was saying before, this is where they're trying to add some shades of grey to Black Wolf. I just want to make the world better for my people in crazy fascistic ways. But it doesn't really come across as making him in any way less of a bad guy. Yeah, I don't think anybody feels for Nazis when they chant blood and soil. No, they, uh, they, they misfired a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> Black Wolf says he intends to keep pumping kids into his girlfriend until she bears him a non-mutant son. And seeing as he himself is mutant without forearm meats, and she's a blue-skinned elf chick, well, good luck with that. Has anyone missed the point about how much of a villain Black Wolf is? I've tried to reason with them, but they just won't go. I swear, I've dealt with toddlers who were better behaved. All right. You heard the lady ask. Now I'm telling you, it's time to leave, or else. Last chance, folks. Please make good choices. Nobody's gonna make good choices. Well, no. Never made a good choice in their lives. Okay, get that paddy wagon open. I'm placing you all under arrest. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Would you have a look at that headlock here? Get your hand off my penis! God, Daniel, can't you say Clark Nova on the... I, I would, but... After that last bump of bug powder I gave him... Oh, he's gonna be on the nod. Ow! Ooh, ooh, do it again. Ooh, ooh. Ow, harder. What about the chumps? Too tight, you fascist. Uh, they're they're having <clears throat> a literary discussion group. <clears throat> Remember? Ow! Ow! Don't quit, quit shoving! Hey, careful, man! There's a beverage involved here. Hey! Ow! Don't have to defend the corners. Ah, you know I see. It's just a little bit of a No need to be rough. Into the back of the van. Do do you think the bar is gonna be okay? Well, if by okay you mean drunk dry by knuckle draggers, then yes, I think it'll be okay. At least they didn't pepper spray us. Speak for yourself. They sent me to Flavortown. Oh, it burns with the power of a million tacos. What do we do now? We continue with the conclave. Obviously. Well, all right then. Anyway, by this point, Avatar and his crew have made it beyond the standard fantasy glade and into the generic mountains beyond, where the dreaded mountain fairies live. Even Peace, who has automatic weapons and is an invincible robot assassin, thinks they should just go around. Anyway, Avatar is one of the whole, fuck that, we're going right through persuasion. 
Apparently, elves and fairies hate each other and play pranks a lot. It's getting really difficult to take this mission of political violence seriously, guys. This is actually a, a pretty decent sort of, I don't know if I say satire, but th this is some good subtext here talking about like, if only the left would unite, they could defeat the fucking fascists, you know, and all of the leftist infighting circular firing squad is what's keeping us from being able to beat them. This, this I think was actually a good piece of subtext here, but unfortunately it's glossed right over and sped right past in favor of more dick jokes. Well, you know, you gotta have dick jokes. There's some cringe-worthy fairy pranking involving lots of good cheer and laughter, but Weehawk isn't impressed and wants to stab someone. Avatar doesn't care until he's mildly inconvenienced, at which point he loses all patience and literally summons the forces of darkness. The mountain fairies get the message that they're about to get curb stomped by Cthulhu and offer to make amends with a feast. Chief fairy among them is played by none other than Mark Hamill. Yay! Woo! It's actual Mark Hamill. To my knowledge, this is actually the first time Mark Hamill does uh, voice acting, like actually does an animated character voice. Well, the preamble to the Joker. Things get very confusing here because it would have been too difficult to properly animate what's going on. Weehawk notices peace has wandered off and raises the alarm. And suddenly they all come under fire from persons unseen. Fairy King Mark Hamill is immediately shot and leaves the proceedings. Considering he had to say lines like, good nights of stardust with a straight face, he did pretty well. Eleanor is captured and taken away, and the others pursue her into the very lair of the mountain fairies. Weehawk accidentally falls off a rock ledge into an easily animated void, where there's a ridiculously prolonged sequence where he does battle with an even easier animated invisible creature, stalking him off screen. When we finally see the beast, it's just your basic blobby monster with disco ball eyes. Whatever. Luckily, Pete turns up to gun it down and save the day. Don't worry. This is not explained. Nor is it explained why the monster spontaneously combusts after it keels over and dies. Why does this thing burst into flame? Magic. Put in some steam, put in some steam over there with a bit of fire. No <laughs> need for anything else. Just, we'll get through it with some steam, all right? It, call it an invisible beast. Yeah, yeah, more <laughs> of the, the tinted stock footage of dry ice clouds. I wonder what their dry ice budget was like on this film. <laughs> probably not very high since they were probably just using stock footage, but we'll see, I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, the mountain fairies are dancing around their prisoner. Eleanor is propped up like King Kong on display and they seem to blame her for the death of Mark Hamill. To be fair, it's totally unclear what happened here. They call her traitor and she replies that she is not a traitor. In short order, Eleanor is sick of all this mountain fairy shit and unleashes her true power. Now, there's no easy way to say this, but it seems that she can project violet force beams from her vulva. Let's just leave it at that. Apparently, <laughs> this is a demonstration of full fairy powers, and even she wasn't aware she could do it yet. Eleanor tries it again, and this time her magical lady garden transforms a statue into a wild beast, which begins to menace her. Ain't that how it always goes, ladies? <laughs> Where to begin with this? Yeah. I mean, she just sort of does a, a pelvic thrust and fires laser beams from her groin. What can you say? <laughs> that's uh, some serious. That in real life, ladies. That's some serious training she was getting from Avatar there, apparently. <laughs> oh, those are some kegels. <laughs> <laughs> Do your kegels. At this point. Avatar arrives and grandly announces that he can't really do anything about the situation. He explains to the presumably very new Mountain Fairy King that it was in fact more Black Wolf's assassins who did all the shooting before. We just couldn't see them because that would have been a real bitch to animate. 
Avatar just wants to take the girl and be on his way to stop another Holocaust. That's how he describes it. Yeah, so we're, we've got a full-on Holocaust happening here now. Yeah. Subtlety be damned. It is confusing at this point, because Mark Hamill, clearly, and that is the, the king of the fairies, he gets shot, and then immediately there's a new king. So is What's this just a very, <laughs> very efficient line of succession here? Better than, you know, president leads to princess? I don't know. Yeah, well, and he's much younger than the than the new king too, so that you know also is kind of strange. Maybe that's why they don't like the mountain fairies. The mountain fairies got their shit together. They know what's up. Again, a weirdly directed and very confusing sequence of events occurs. Black Wolf appears for a fraction of a second to announce that Avatar is lying. Someone shoots Avatar in the arm with an arrow, and everyone is screaming. The king decides that this whole thing is a great big mess. The Mountain Fairies are going to Switzerland out this whole shooting match and help no one. Avatar and Eleanor are instantly teleported into a snowy wasteland. The snow is super easy to draw. Avatar magics a poncho for Eleanor, but no footwear for either of them because I guess 10 million years in the future, frostbite isn't that thing. The two wander past a few 70s prog rock album covers and soon it starts to snow. No need to worry, the snow effect is expensive and won't be there long. Yeah, it's just like, we're done with this scene, let's move somewhere else. Magical teleportation. Uh, you know, it's funny, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, you're right. Uh, the uh, the uh, Winter Wonderland is pretty easy to animate. Let me tell you, there's two things that are easy to draw. A lot of snow and a lot of sand. Those are the easy <laughs> things. Everything else is hard. <laughs> Suddenly, riders are coming. You can tell because someone is banging coconuts together in the distance. We're sure that they're all around, just just off screen. Fortunately, it turns out to be Peace and Weehawk. What took you so long? Avatar asks. Peace says nothing. Because he never explains anything at all. When he does talk, he sounds like you know somebody who has uh, suffered a severe concussion. Yeah, he just he just shows up and does things and refuses to explain and then wanders off. Why they take him is a, a mystery to me. I mean, he's the only one with a gun. That is a fair point. point. Yeah, then we might actually have to see Avatar with a submachine gun, which would actually mm -hmm. kind of cool. Citadel Miniatures must have gotten the idea. And they're just Wizard like, with a submachine gun, are you insane? That's stupid. <laughs> no one would ever come up with that idea. They get around the no the no technology thing by making someone else use the technology for them. Hey. It's like, like Amish who have people driving cars for them. You have my bow and my sword and my SMG. You know what? Keep the bow, keep the sword. Those are good. <laughs> I'll take the dude with the SMG. Exactly. <laughs> now we're back into slideshow vision again as the incredibly bored narrator, presumably between bong hits and entire teacups of ketamine, boredly explains that the next part of the journey was through amazing and fantastic lands filled with wondrous vistas and amazing creatures, which would have been incredibly difficult to draw. They even had a run-in with bikini-clad angry giantesses who threw boulders around. It was super creative and a true visual feast. We are ponderously informed in the voiceover. At least we got a couple of those monochrome still illustrations. Yeah, they, they really go into how amazing all the next bit is. And you can't see any of it, but take our word for it, some really amazing shit happened. I wanted to see the bikini-clad giantesses, but no. You can see a slideshow and like it. Shut up. Death <laughs> by Snoo Snoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we don't get to see it, but it's in the past, and past is prologue. Oh my god, how dare you. <laughs> Finally, the group arrives in the desert, second easiest thing to draw after snow, 
Yeah. And are, and are suddenly surrounded by boisterous freedom fighter type guys led by a boisterous Brian Blessed type fellow who's delighted to see Avatar again. This general guy has ambushed a patrol, stolen a bunch of weapons, raised an army, and basically done all the important stuff to prepare for a final battle in two days' time. All off screen! All right. Ride's over. Let's go. You leave me alone, or I'll shout you dead! I'll bloody shout you dead! I'll shout! I'll shout! <laughs> Why did you shout like that inside the van, you complete and total beland? Wait, what did you just call me? A beland? It's pronounced beland. Not the way uh, uh, I pr pronounce it. <laughs> twat. Uh, actually, that's pronounced twat. All right, enough. Out. What if I don't want to? Yeah, pendejo, what then? Don't make me tase you, bro. Okay, then. No, no, no. We're not fighting you on that. This, this way to booking. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to take real good care of you guys. <laughs> I don't think that he meant he is going to take that, that care of What have you guys gotten me into? Why? Why did I get stuck with you? Oh, Lord. We have a job to do, people, as this conclave's pontifex of presentment. It is my duty to remind everyone we have a job to do. I am aware that while the conditions are less than optimal... Yes, Andre? <laughs> I gotta pee. Just go. The toilet's right there. But I don't want to do it in front of everyone. Pfft, there's no modesty in jail. Well, actually, this isn't jail. It's just holding. Well, actually, dude, you're sitting on a toilet behind bars. Is that close enough to jail for you? Speaking of modesty, XYZ. What? XYZ, your fly's your, down. Your fly's down. Oh, <laughs> excuse me. The cops got a little overzealous while doing the strip search. Good thing I didn't go commando today. <laughs> wait, wait. Am I the only one who got strip searched? What the hell? Hey, I asked them to do a cavity search, but they turned me down. There's an image. Woof. Ah, uh, somebody get me the mind bleach. I could go for a hit of mind bleach right now. Now there's a surprise. Someone should stand at an intervention. Anybody who tries that better pack a lunch. And I really gotta go, Ethan, can you? Address me by my title. Uh, Inquisitor Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses. Can you please move? As per society bylaws, whomsoever is serving as Pontifex of Presentment requires a crow. This is the closest thing we have in this room. Therefore, I am disinclined to acquiesce to your request. God damn it! Now, shall we resume? Who is narrating part three of Wizards? Andre? I'll do it. I'll take this one. <clears throat> so, we rejoin our party in the encampment of the Army of Good. Although, to be honest, they just look a little bit raggedy. A few of them have purloined automatic weapons, but most of it is just your standard barbarian types. 
imagine an army of old school D&D archetypes all jumbled together and you get the idea. Lots of furry loincloths and horny helmets. Uh, I mean, pointy protectors. Uh, I mean to say uh, that the horn-helmed warriors are all quivering and tumescent. <coughs> <laughs> That's a hard point to make. <laughs> I feel dirty. The leader of these guys is never really named, except for a mumbled acknowledgement from Avatar at one point, but why bother with characterization right now? He's big, his helmet is super polished and horny as hell, and he's got a plan. All he needs is a wizard, and he's got a seriously gnarly posse behind him. But Avatar is having none of it, and is furious, punching his buddy to the ground. Kinda comes out of nowhere as well, he just smacks him. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was kind of an odd thing. You've got this this big beardy elf with a horny helmet, and suddenly Avatar uh, beats him down. Like it's a choice. It's a choice. Yeah, and this is the point where the entire you'd expect... movie was a choice. This is a point where you'd expect Avatar to go on a long rant about how he never wanted to see armies on the march. You can't solve violence with violence. Yada yada, but he just sort of stands there, looking a bit confused. Horny Brian Blessed has got plenty of rant to go around though. In days of yore, and you remember yore, it was before yesteryear, Avatar was a messiah, curing radiation sickness from men and birds. Specifically, only men and birds are mentioned. And now here he is, along with ahem, a woman child, one elf, and a moron robot. This should be presented as Avatar having a Yoda-like philosophical discussion about why you can't solve your problems by fighting, but instead, when asked to join up, he just hits someone, leaves, and refuses to elaborate. Real missed opportunity to explain what the hell the old man is all about. Yeah, th this was a real missed opportunity. I mean, you could have had some kind of pontification, you know, about fascism, like, like you said, it, uh, really... They could have made some stuff. Other another side point here too is that he specifically refers to Eleanor as a woman child, which yeah. uh, when we were sort of talking about the potential. Uh, I mean, is he sort of talking in elf terms, like how everyone's a child because I'm a thousand years old, or is he just saying, yeah, she's a woman child? We don't know. It's just like, commenting on how she's simultaneously sexualized and infantilized. Yeah, she like, totally is. Yeah. Not just that, but like, you know, it kind of adds some, some additional, like, gross shading to, you know, she is being trained by Avatar. Like, it just really makes it seem icky. Trained or groomed? Yeah. Lot of training, then. While the encampment is sleeping, Peace, the moron robot, is sitting on a cliff, and Eleanor wanders over, perhaps to discuss the duality of the situation, seeing as her nipples are so pointy, she looks like she's trying to indicate both sides of the argument at once. However, Avatar and Weehawk are awoken by her girly screams. A black, sort of poorly animated blobby cloud thing is suddenly there. Avatar surmises that Black Wolf is trying to retake control over peace. Back to hell, Avatar cries, and since the budget won't stretch to a confrontation, the blob obliges and buggers off. It turns out that the <laughs> comforting presence of Eleanor has caused Peace's mental fortitude to slip for a moment, letting Black Wolf in. Frankly, the way Eleanor is dressed, it's amazing anyone can even walk straight. She's like a walking advertisement for custard and trampolines. <laughs> you can't take her seriously in any way. <laughs> the way she's just boinging the, around. And her voice, just that baby voice. Oh. The weird thing is, too, is that if you go look up the actress here, if you actually go to look at her IMDb profile, she actually looks significantly like the character that they drew for her. Um, it's kind of odd. Well, I just hope she doesn't genuinely sound like her. Wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, I just thought it was kind of odd because they, like, I thought that was a more recent thing with Disney making the characters that they animate look like the actors who portray them. Well, in this case, uh, oh, they actually did that. No, I think that's something that's been happening for a long time. I know but, Disney had done it for a while, at least since the 60s. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. When they were doing Alice Either in Wonderland, they, would... they, um, they actually looked like they got actors in that they thought would look good and drew off their performances in order yeah. to create the... Good point. They did rotoscope. That's what they did rotoscoping with. I just thought that, yeah, anyway. Sorry, uh, just misperception. It definitely is modern times now. They definitely do do it more, like with motion capture and everything to make the mouths mm. move the same. But they had the idea back before they had the technology. Yeah. Well, if we hadn't had Boingy or Eleanor, we wouldn't now have Thanos. So, <laughs> Suddenly, there is the sound of shooting from off screen. An actual, no kidding, tank has rolled up to the guys and pieces fighting it. There shall be no explanation for this, so crave not what she shall never receive. It's actually a surprisingly well done scene because the tank has been rotoscoped out of some old WW2 footage from the looks of things and conveys suitable menace. Peace leaps atop the twisting turret to totally tender a torrent of torment on the tank top when Eleanor, for no reason, steals Weehawk's sword and hurls it, spearing him right through the jumpsuit. Peace deflates as Eleanor hops aboard the machine and rolls off into the fog. But why? Yeah, this it does is, come out of nowhere. Yeah, out of complete nowhere. It's just like, wait, what? Huh? Does she does she straddle the gun turret when she jumps on there? I do. That might have been a bit remember. difficult to animate, but I'm pretty sure there's something like that in there. Seems like something they would do for her character. Yeah. Scenes running on too long. Throw in a tank. Well, anyway, soon the final battle is going to begin. Everyone has loaded aboard a fleet of fantastical grimdark ships to head for Black Wolf's place and politely ask him to stop with all the fascism. Avatar is just off in a corner muttering to himself, and Weehawk believes that Eleanor's apparent betrayal has broken the old man's heart. The leader guy insists, in the face of all evidence, that Avatar is just fine and the attack will begin as planned. Which just goes to show why you should never take advice on mental health from a guy with a helmet but no trousers. Well, this is also the same guy whom Avatar beat down in the preceding couple of scenes, right? Yeah, he's used to just and, saying everything's fine, we, we go on. And I think it's one of the few scenes where Avatar's not smoking a cigar, so you definitely know something's wrong with him. Well, you know, you could look at this again as a little bit more allegory about, you know, if the left could get its shit together and stop fighting amongst itself, it could actually present a unified front against fascists. The grimdark Malarian ships enter some grimdark Malarian scenery and everything becomes twisted and fantastical, which is how you know they're approaching Scorch One, the lair of Black Wolf. It's clear that this is a bit where they put the most effort in. The One is how you know it's sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, no joke, these backgrounds are sick. Weehawk's plan is to walk right in because no one would expect that. You know, this is why no one puts elves in charge of combined arms logistical efforts. By now, Avatar is really starting to lose it and just starts randomly conjuring flowers and whatnot in his addled state. I'm trying to figure out, like, why is it that he, he goes completely sideways like this when Eleanor ditches them? Again, they've, they've not really developed the character enough, so his left turn here, we don't really have a handle on what's going on with him. Within Scorch, prisoners are being tormented by various types of generally bad dudes, most of whom are now openly wearing swastikas. Hitler's speeches are playing over the PA system, and he actually got a mention in the credits. So if you're ever playing Five Degrees of Kevin Bacon, you can now link Mark Hamill with De Fuhrer. In one degree. <laughs> yeah. Amazingly, it is sadly true. 
fantasy Nazis are having a grand old time, chilling out with prostitutes and making fairies sing for them in beer halls. It's like that scene in Casablanca, except having made that comparison, I now need to scoop out my brain with a melon baller and go lie down. <laughs> I hate even comparing <laughs> those two scenes. <laughs> having observed the goings-on, Avatar snaps. He advances on a skull-faced guy in an SS uniform who has a prostafairy with him and starts ranting about how war isn't the answer, everything could be beautiful, and he starts throwing flowers around. One wonders how far he expected to get with this argument against a guy with a literal skull for a head. But in fact, the general finds it all hilarious. So you were talking about how if the left could all get together, you know, and stop infighting. I wonder if... Um avatar here is supposed to represent like the the hippies the super um the peaceniks the what do you call there's, them there's definitely something sort of anti-vietnam war about his attitude at this point the futility of the people who want nothing but peace mm. and nothing but flowers and you know yeah Ugh. it's definitely capital s saying something mm. yeah what that something is is unclear but maybe maybe it's this well, the guy he's saying it to is actually quite a charming Nazi when you get to know him. Even when Larry the Mutant Lizard person shows up and inexplicably recognizes the flower power Hippy Dip is really the great and powerful avatar, the general just laughs heartily and doesn't believe him. Lovely guy for a Nazi, it would seem. But good humor and good manners don't always make for a good person. Anyway, Weehawk fucking stabs him in the gizzards and starts a big fight because Weehawk actually understands that direct action is the only effective way to deal with a fucking Nazi. Critical support from Comrade Weehawk. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Bashy's anti-fascist action for the win. That's one of the clearest statements made in this film, I think. Um, also, side note, if you want to hear more about the history of anti-fascist cinema, Margaret Kiljoy's podcast, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, did a couple of really excellent episodes on anti-fascist cinema in the early 20th century. Um, she goes into some detail about badasses like Max Schreck. You guys ever heard of Max Schreck? Oh, yeah, the, the Count. Yeah, yeah, this is the guy who played Count Orlock in the first film adaptation of Dracula. It was actually an unlicensed one. They called it Nosferatu. Max Schreck was an anti-fascist street fighter in Weimar, Germany, and, and a bouncer at a queer nightclub in Weimar, Germany, and uh, definitely had no problem throwing hands and punching Nazis. Uh, literal Nazis in this case, punching literal Nazis. Um, also mentions Bela Lugosi, um, who also played Dracula. He's, when people think of Dracula, he's who you think of. He's the guy who played Dracula in the first uh, licensed adaptation of Dracula. Um, he fought fascists in Hungary and in the United States, helped found the Screen Actors Guild in the 30s, um, and then was one of the most prominent people in the United States uh, from Hollywood who was demanding that Washington rescue Jews from Nazi persecution, in his case specifically Hungarian Jews. Um, they also mentioned filmmaker Fritz Lang, who was a committed anti-fascist, um, who took on the subject in his film Metropolis, which you guys might have heard of. Um, it's the first ever film to depict a futuristic urban dystopia um, and inspired basically just about every one of the greatest films of the second half of the 20th century. Um, C-3PO was designed after the, the robot woman. And uh, so was Robocop. Yeah, that's right. Robocop as well. Um, like there's a number of movies who, that were inspired by uh, that were inspired by Metropolis, including Frankenstein, Blade Runner, Star Wars, Dark City, Doctor Strangelove. Like you can just about every other film that followed it 
in one way or another, if it's a sci-fi film, it owes some of its cinematic genetic legacy to uh, Metropolis. Um, also, uh, Tim Burton fans have probably heard of the film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, which is usually held up as the example of German expressionist cinema. Um, and there's usually not a whole lot of other discussion about German expressionism, which was explicitly anti-fascist and heavily tied into with uh, anti-fascist playwright Bertolt Brecht. And the whole movement was a pushback against rising fascist sentiment in Weimar Germany. Um, so it's funny, people talk about German expressionism and they point to a couple of films, but they don't really discuss the movement and what was behind it for reasons. Um, I'm not going to get into all of it here. I mean, because like, really, this is, we have our own thing to talk about and Margaret Kiljoy, frankly, does a better job. So go and listen to those episodes of cool people who did cool stuff and talk about it on our subreddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. Well, they say the devil has the best tunes, but it looks like the good guys have all the great movies. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. Well, when Weehawk's fight is over, Avatar comes to his senses and seems to realize that things are truly out of hand. Off they go to the castle. As dawn breaks, the invading good guys march ashore, spears glinting and determination in their eyes. The bad guys wait, machine guns ready, and start having a right good laugh about what a one-sided battle this is going to be. And what a battle it is. Horses by the thousands, soldiers, knights, tanks, guns, an incredible array of armored fury, mainly because they nicked all the footage from war films, added a few color filters, and rotoscoped it all. It might be outright theft, but it sure, does make, uh, <laughs> it sure does make for a hell of a battle sequence. None of it makes much sense, of course, but there's a lot of it. And a lot of it reused from earlier battle scenes, including the Zulus, the Crusader Knights, and... Oh, yeah. yeah. And this is a long battle. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of it going on. Uh, halfway through it all, the prog rock funk bass and whacka whacka guitar starts up, and you can tell that they put a lot of long nights into it. Long cocaine-fueled nights with lots of Pink Floyd on the hi-fi. Allegedly. 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 The point we're trying to make here is that this is the kind of thing you see when you eat the whole brownie in one go. I believe you brothers can speak to the truth of that now, am I right? Wasn't that a pretty common thing to do back then, to reuse animation? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, Just because it was so difficult to animate. I mean, I was watching some old Disney films with my kids the other day, and there's definite scenes that are reused over and over. Yeah, Robin Hood basically a tiny reused bit. A, a ton of Jungle Book. They, like, they literally took exactly. the cells, recolored them, yeah. It was a common thing, so, you know. And uh, we were watching um, The Sword in the Stone, and there's a clear scene from Bambi. <laughs> Recycling. <laughs> yeah, and the scene where the kid falls down the stairs gets used twice. That Shit's wasn't necessarily it. you got to use what you got. Yeah. Yeah, we can't shit too hard on 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 uh, Ralph Bakshi for reusing stuff. Um, like uh, it's yeah. the sa same thing. Like you know, Andy and I were doing an animation, and you know, I we recycled some stuff in it. So you know, it's hard. It's labor intensive. So save uh, labor saving steps are part of the game. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, the battle isn't going particularly well for anyone. It's psychedelic chaos. Watching from the castle, Avatar and Weehawk wonder what to do about it. Black Wolf's girlfriend is here, you remember her? With babe in arms, and she's generally upset about this too, ranting on about how it's not so cool that everybody's dying. One thing's clear, Eva Braun, she ain't. This lady has a conscience. 
our heroes discover Eleanor just sort of sitting in a corner, and it turns out that the black blobby cloud thing that tried to take peace got in her head, and it was all mind control from there. So that mystery is all wrapped up nicely. Yeah. It is now time for the final confrontation between Black Wolf and Avatar. The brothers meet in front of a lovingly rendered backdrop of melting cubist nightmare chaos architecture. This is Black damn Wolf good. This is this is some of Ian Miller's best work, most iconic. Um, and and you can see it come back again in Realms of Chaos. Like he he definitely was like, oh, this is cool. Let me draw more like this. So you'll see this in a lot of the work that he did for. Oh yeah, he's going shot. buck wild here. This is great. Yeah. Black Wolf does the whole surrender all is lost, no need to throw your life away, slash, we're not so different, you and I, join me and together we can rule, spiel. In return, Avatar chuckles and replies that Mon taught him a special magic trick for occasions like this. Avatar the Great rolls up his sleeves and pulls out a Luger. He straight up shoots Black Wolf straight through the heart like a stone-cold gangster. Hey, it's a kind of magic. <laughs> so, and here's a quick note for anyone who says, Hey, he used technology. Avatar just broke his own rules. This is just your reminder that fascists don't play by the rules, especially not the rules they make themselves. But they expect you to play by the rules. Uh, so if you're going to stop someone from doing a fascism, sometimes you got to break the rules. Black Wolf's dying gasp could only have been better if it had been so much for the tolerant laugh. <laughs> yeah. Another another stab at how pacifism won't work. <laughs> well, I sadly, guess it... uh, for all of its good points, sometimes pacifism isn't enough. No. Yeah, the rules only work if everybody plays by them, and when somebody stops playing by the rules and basically adopts a win-at-all-costs tactic, then you kind of have to use their own tools to fight them. Um, yeah, when, when one side has got actual skull faces, you're in trouble. Yeah. Are we the baddies? <laughs> Well, everything starts disintegrating because that's the rule with magical fortresses of evil. You kill the big bad, everything goes into self-destruct mode. The dream machine explodes. Shame they didn't use stock footage of a frame burn. Real lost opportunity there. And Avatar, Eleanor, and Weehawk escape. No word on Black Wolf's blue-skinned girlfriend and her newborn, though. But who cares about them? The world is free. The forces that Black Wolf summoned up simply disperse, all to tinkly music and another bored-sounding voiceover. Once again, we're in easy-to-animate slideshow vision. All is well, the land is at peace, Hitler's dead again, and the elves are working hard to mop up the survivors. Not kidding, the bored lady specifies both of those things. Yeah, you don't have to deal with any kind of uh, asymmetric warfare slash insurgency thing happening for decades afterward. There's no discussion about that. Uh, but... I mean, I'm on the side of peace and good, but when it comes to elven death squads, I'm a little more uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is the point here that if we just shot Hitler, everything would have just been over? Simple and nice and easy? Uh, not so great at the nation building, just the invasion part. Who could have seen it coming? Well, you know, I do have to say, we, you know, that that was one instance in which nation building actually did good. Um, the the Marshall Plan, you know, they they recognized that. Oh, wait a minute, maybe like you know, sitting on on the head of a nation and a whole group of people and just basically like like squeezing them for all their their financially worth, like happened at the end of the First World War. Maybe that doesn't turn out so good. If we don't want a third one of these, maybe we need to rebuild what we destroyed and and actually try to help retrain people. 
give them I up. I think that's uh, that's probably a little bit more of a deep reading into the post-war scenario than Bakshi is really able to give us at this juncture because yeah. all that's left is a little bit of slapstick to sign us off. We all have a little more of Larry the Mutant Lizard person being servile to his new overlords. Avatar overcomes his anti-mutant bigotry to let Larry go because it's not his fault. Huzzah! Weehawk is going to go back home and be king. Huzzah! Eleanor is back to being good. Huzzah! Avatar is feeling rejuvenated. Huzzah! He and Eleanor got married, off-screen naturally, and they go off for a mighty shag fest. Huzzah! Isn't he like three times her age? Or At more. least. Yeah. Credits roll. Credits that include actual Hitler. And then they have the sheer brass balls to add in the boilerplate about how any resemblance to actual persons is purely coincidental. It's fucking Hitler. <laughs> why, why do they think he needs a credit or deserves one? What do they think they're going to get sued? They're basically suggesting that legally he isn't a real person, living or dead. <laughs> but yet they credit him. They don't, they don't want the Hitler estate coming after them. Pure uh, coincidence. <laughs> well, I suppose that about wraps it up for Ralph Bakshi's wizards. Oh, thank God. I feel like I'm about to pop a kidney. Uh, excuse me, but have we adjourned yet? We still have judgment to render. I'm guilty. <laughs> it's not that simple. We must first deliberate. So we know why we have rendered our guilty verdict. Oh, you sadistic bastards. No time for flattery. We have a job to do. Hey, you nerds got sprung. You get to go home. Guy. Uh, what? Damn it. You're not happy to see me? This is the closest I have ever come to being happy to see you, but not quite. Hope springs eternal, huh? Not even when I've got you all out of jail. Such ingratitude. What is that thing on your head? It's like a dead possum. Classic. It's a wig. You know, you don't have to wear those here. Your lawyer I'm a barrister, I love has you accepted know. this restraining order on your behalf. The city won't press charges so long as you stay away from the TBD Shopping Plaza redevelopment site. For the last time, it's the strip mall of the damned. I honestly don't care what you call it, so long as you stay away from those condemned buildings. For God's sake, they're full of black mold and asbestos. Why do you even... Wait, where's the kid? I'm here. Sorry. Sorry. Had to take care of some, uh, whoops. What'd I miss? I'll catch you up later. Anyway, you're free to go. Bus stop is half a block down. Are we not even going to discuss Brother Methuselah somehow being a lawyer? Barrister! Bollockster. <gasps> I believe when Brother Methuselah first started practicing, the Roman Empire called it a Juris Consulti. Take that wig off. We're in the bloody bus stop, not a courtroom. I didn't even know he had a suit. I've only seen him in that moldy old bathrobe and fez. 
Well, we still haven't adjourned. We may as well render our judgment while we await the bus. Let us now hear deliberation from each of you. You mean judgment? Yes. Let's hear your uh, deliberation and judgment, Zach. All right. <clears throat> First time I saw this movie, I was in the fifth grade. I was having a slumber party, my first slumber party, and we rented a video player, a top loader, because we didn't have our own VCR, and my parents rented some movies. So on top of the never-ending story, they got Wizards. I'd never seen Wizards, neither had any of us. We watched it, and let's just say it left an impact on all of us poor kids. <laughs> Since uh, that first time watching it, uh, I became um, I became interested in comics and specifically the 1960s uh, underground comics movement where a lot of these people and animators who made this movie came from and were influenced by uh, a lot of the same people who did heavy metal, which was also a staple of mine when growing up, you know, Zap, Fabulous Fury, Freak Brothers. They were all influenced this film, in my opinion, and have their fingerprints all over it. Um, that being said, this movie is a psychedelic trip. And as we've stated before, that there's not so much a storyline as more of a vibe to this film. And one of the things I like about it is it's definitely still got that very strong 1960s down with fascism kind of feel to it with none of this nonsense today where just like well you know the nazis let's hear what they have to say it's like no nazis are bad guys you use whatever means necessary and uh, avatar's little reveal at the end where he like actually pulls out a luger and shoots uh, Black Wolf right in the chest. That is just the icing on the cake for me. It's like, yeah, at some point you might even have to use the uh, machinations of who you're trying to fight to get them. What it costs you in the long run, well, it's uh, difficult to say. But overall, the rotoscoping and the looping of various animations in this movie, even the first time I saw it, it kind of bugged me. Um, it's disjointed, it's hard to watch, but you know, you have a few drinks or whatever, and this movie is just a trip you go on. It is definitely guilty of Cinemania in the fact that it does feel a bit like an acid flashback, but you know, not necessarily a bad one. It's worth your time if you can face the Cinemania. So, guilty. All right. Um, <clears throat> Andy? Wow. Wow, this film. I really came into this wanting to love this film. I love stories about the distant future. I love prog rock soundtracks. I love crazy psychedelic art. And yet, watching this film, I did feel like it became something of a chore. It kept getting bogged down under the weight of what it was trying to do and failing to do the necessary heavy lifting to actually get it across. Uh, too many times there are moments where you can see that there's a point they're trying to make, but they can't even find the point. They're just groping around helplessly. And I can't help feeling that this is a case of an animator trying to achieve more than they have the resources to really do. So much of it falls flat just because they didn't take the time to re-edit and rewrite and maybe spend a little more animation, or they didn't have the money to do that. But then, having said that, 
Shouldn't a man's reach always exceed his grasp? Shouldn't we always bite off just a little more than we can chew? Shouldn't we always strive for just that little bit more than we can ever hope to achieve? The answer is no. This film is guilty. It's guilty of not being what it could have been. And what it could have been is something truly special rather than a cinematic oddity that's worth watching but not nearly as important as it thinks that it is. Therefore, I judge it guilty. Uh, well said. Uh, Andre, you, you look uh, eager to say something. <laughs> um, whew, kind of piggybacking off what Andy said, it very much, I guess it went out to get this profound message across of, you know, the, the warning signs of fascism and fascism bad and all of that. Um, but... The most that really came across was just like Nazis bad, get them, which isn't bad in of itself, but it's just like the, the, the nuance from the beginning, I guess they were trying to strive for was pretty much entirely lost for look at cool thing. Now look at them beat the fucking living shit out of fascists, which is great. But like, <laughs> nuance, fascist, but oh, elf titties. It's just true, true, very much so. This, this film really kind of provides a sort of a window into what I would have been doing if I was around at the time, the media I would have been consuming as a edgy teen early college kind of bit. I don't know. It, it was really, it was really, really interesting. I can see like how there's uh, <laughs> not a lot of difference between then and now. We just have the internet and flash animation and digital paint tools and all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, the, the budget very much went up their noses um but i feel allegedly, like allegedly. Oh, oh, allegedly allegedly sorry yeah yeah, yeah. i was gonna say that for for legal reasons supposedly this is what happened this is alleged this is not confirmed perhaps legendarily um, even <laughs> you know, with the mythology surrounding this film just want to clarify that we're not accusing anybody yeah, of using exactly. illicit substances this is just this is the rumor it is not true yeah. Uh, but there's no factual evidence to supporting that statement. Just be, make it very clear. For some reason, I guess I was expecting it to be more pornographic, but it wasn't. It was just consistently throughout this amalgamation of what the beginnings of adult animation now, and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll drop a little little fritz of uh, the beginnings of the furry fandom. Um. <laughs> Little fritz of tits for you then. Well, just to um, just to, to kind of throw something out there, because you, um, one of the one of the things you do, if I recall correctly, is you host Dungeons and Dragons sessions yes. for your fans. Mm -hmm. um, just to, to give you a little plug there. I think this movie probably had, a, given when it came out, probably had a significant effect on Gary Gygax, who is the author of D&D. Oh, &D. definitely. Absolutely. Um, it, one of the D&D uh, spinoff products, Gamma World, probably would not have oh, existed yeah. without this film. If anybody knows about Gamma World, which means yep. Fallout would never have existed because Fallout is basically just a clone of TSR's Gamma World which was D&D set really? in a far future post-nuclear apocalypse set. Yep. And Traveler. That, wow. That makes uh, a lot of sense. With that Traveler, added context, like, yeah. Yeah, Traveler was more sci-fi. I don't know if I'd That's say Traveler true. per se, but I would say Gamma World most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. You're giving a lot of credit there. 
No, not at all. <laughs> Have you read the Gamma World source books? Holy shit, man. I mean, like, in terms of the narrative as well, this very much, like, kind of going off of, it's more of a vibe than an actual story. Mm. That's kind of how D&D campaigns tend to go. <laughs> yes! You can set up a climax and a, and an inciting incident and blah, 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 all of the standard structures of the the hero's journey. But ultimately, you're getting a bunch of fucking idiots rolling dice in a basement, and you're going to have all sorts of fucking fun. And I feel like that's also, at least for me, the appeal of it is that vibe, that sort of half improv, half structured, hey, let's just do some cool shit, roll some dice to fucking pull a gun out of your shirt that you didn't announce that you had before and plug this guy's ass like <laughs> i think you just described critical role not that Oops. we're bashing critical role at all we love you matt oh, Mercer. just <laughs> just as a side note the most valued miniature in the citadel line the one that is the most collectible that people pay the most money for is wizard with a submachine gun nice yep. <laughs> hell yeah but yeah just like the the nonsensicalness and the fact that they reached so hard but instead went like, you know what? Fuck it. This is a vibe. This is just like a, an anti-fascist vibe. We just don't really like Nazis, and they should get shot. Boom. Got them. Anyway, that's, that's what I think this film was saying, and that's what I received. And thusly, it has been deemed guilty. Also, 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 also. Um, who's the younger one? The younger guy, Gax? The, I, don't, I don't know. The latest one with the weird company that released that like deliberately racist source book. Fuck those guys. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> How about you, Auntie Hope? What is your uh, deliberation and judgment about this film? I was extremely confused through this whole movie. I did not understand what was going on, but there was a definite clear vibe of Nazis are bad. Fascists are bad. You know, you can tell who's good and who's bad by who has actual forearms and who has bones instead, right? <laughs> so I'm going to say it's guilty of being very, very unsubtle. It just, it was just so black and white. These guys are bad. These guys are good. There was zero gray in this. So you didn't think that the uh, underlying themes were really reaching out to you in some way for this one? <laughs> No. <laughs> was it when Arthur Dent tried to tell the Vogons what he thought of their poetry? That's how I feel like judging this movie is. <laughs> you know, this this movie did exist during Douglas Adams' lifetime. I wonder what his feelings would have been on this. All, all of these things, like Hitchhiker's Guide and Wizards, I mean, this was all part of the same, like, underground pop culture of the time. Yeah. So they, the zeitgeist. That, 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 yeah, it was a there was a cross pollinization, and this is all the stuff that later on gave us Star Wars and stuff. I mean, you ah. look at Necron ninety nine, you look at Darth Vader. I mean, come on. <laughs> and you, Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco, what is your opinion on this film? Based on the female representation in this film, the creators must have been a bunch of virgins in a basement who watch way too much porn. Where to start? Uh, nipples on animated characters, fairy prostitutes, vagina bombing your enemies, sexual poses. Uh, someone asks you to sit for a while and instead she sits on top of him in a sexual pose. Uh, not to mention that at the end of the movie, Eleanor gets married to her teacher avatar who's how many thousands of years older than her? With his comment, let's make it. I would have thought that so many thousands of years in the future, 
we would have gotten past queasy teacher-student sexual relationships. It isn't 2022 anymore, after all. That's kind of the thing that, that I mean, I'm not trying to make light of this, but this is apparently actually a serious problem in academia. I can't really speak to it, but I, I know more than a few people who are exploited by their advisors. So, you know, that doesn't mean it make it right. But at the same time, yeah, you'd think that 10 million years in the future that uh, we might have gotten past this. But then again, they did nuke themselves back to the Stone Age. And he does sound like a war detective. So maybe that's where his mindset is. Yeah, it is pretty sweaty, you know, it's it's pretty gross, like like the whole, like like their exploitative relationship being a point of humor. Um, I, I, your point's well taken. I just have to say, since this is a film that launched a thousand scantily clad elven avatars, I must judge it guilty of Cinemania. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Well said. Um, said about a bunch of virgins living in a basement watching entirely too much porn. Um, have you have you seen any other Ralph Bakshi movies? I haven't actually. Well, I, well, I did watch The Hobbit, the animated version, when I was very young. I think The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were the only ones that weren't uncomfortably sweaty in one way or another. Like. Um, <laughs> Definitely Fritz the Cat, definitely um, Heavy Traffic. Uh, it was an urban adult cartoon set, you know, that was made in the early 70s. Definitely Fire and Ice, which, you know, had basically what looked like penthouse models rotoscoped. Um, <laughs> um, and then you got to remember, this is also the same guy who made Cool World, where... That's the sexy version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, this it was exactly it. It was the guy watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit and being uh, like, you know what would make this movie better? If they actually fucked. Yeah, I didn't know that was the same guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the same guy, Ralph Bakshi. <laughs> He certainly has a theme to his movies, doesn't he? I, I'm starting to get a sense of it, yes. And you, Profligator Daniel, what is your take on wizards? So, Pontifex, we have a rather unique case in front of us today, I think, personally. We have something which I have never seen before in all my sojourns. And let me tell you, I have sojourned. This, I think is a rare, possibly unique example of bi-quadratic cinemania. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking four levels of cinemania. That's like four inceptions. Cinemania is not squared, it's not cubed, it's to the fourth power. Yes, yes, exactly. Four powers. Not three, sir, three, but four. Allow me to explain. Uh, but... I will explain delicately for the ears of our listeners who may not be so protected from these kinds of binomial diversions. We have a film which at its heart is thematically a warning against cinemania. It is a screed against the dangers of cinemania that could come from exploring too deeply into technology. And how does it demonstrate this in the plot? But you see a device designed to cause cinemania used against the elves, driving them insane. Furthermore, how does it do this? But it projects films from the Nazi era, which themselves are sources of cinemania. Lastly, this film is, of course, a source of cinemania. So that is not one, not two, not three, but four layers of cinemania. Ah, 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 ah. Sorry. So, 
I mean, I, I don't think we can do anything but judge it as, as guilty. Uh, I don't know if we can actually add to the charges and, and judge it guilty times four. Um, is that a thing we can do if we check I, the if we check the rule book? I don't see any reason we couldn't. Okay, well there you go. I I put in four votes for guilty. Well, okay. So to be fair, I've taken a piss out of this movie, but that's only because I love it so much. I wouldn't make fun of yeah. it if I didn't love it. I wouldn't make fun of it. <clears throat> I have just for full transparency, I have the wizard's poster, the one with Necron ninety nine on his blob horse, up on the wall at my office at work, right next to my Buckaroo Banzai poster. Individual images from this film look great. You could take a frame of this movie and blow it up into a poster and be like, yes, that's an amazing prog rock-esque 70s poster. But when they're animating from beginning to end and you have to get a narrative out of it and you're watching it as a story, that's where it's sort of- The narrative is just- piece by piece and doesn't connect it it's the so vibe confusing. is great the yeah, visuals well, are great the... and we can we can shit all over the animation you know but at the same point like dude andy you and i know animation is hard like we have this animated thing that we've been doing and it's very time consuming so like you know even with all this stuff sped up using adobe after effects and and photoshop and, and the whole process being you know mechanized and and done you know by computer it's still very labor intensive so you know the fact that these you know but at this like you have an independent animation studio that is funded by 20th century fox but they don't have the kind of resources that disney had and they're doing stuff that but yeah i mean like there's a lot of no one has ever had the resources disney has yeah to be fair disney's uh, whole point they've got limited resources so bakshi thinks i know i'm going to animate an apocalyptic battle between globe-spanning armies taking place a million years in the future maybe set your sights a little bit lower towards yeah. something that you could achieve a bit better bakshi yeah fair yeah. point i mean like up to that point the only thing you could see that looked remotely like a mass battle in animation was maybe the night on bald mountain scene at the end of fantasia that's the only thing i can think of that might have had that same sort of look and but, i mean doing what with what they had i mean they made some really iconic things like like you were talking about the the, on the poster, Necron 99 sitting on the blob horse. I mean, people have that tattooed on them. And I mean, yeah, that, that whole imagery was, stuck, was yeah. and that image was sort of taken by uh, Frank Fazetta from his like death dealer. Yeah, um, that was definitely a callback uh, to things. Frank Fazetta. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot. Now, um, there's a lot like you're saying, a lot of cross pollinization there. So, now, here's what you have to consider. Later on, after this, Bakshi went on to do the Lord of the Rings animated film, and he used a lot of the same kind of techniques, but they were more refined, and it, effectively, the stuff he began here came to fruition a lot more with his Lord of the Rings. Now, how do we feel? Was it was it worth him going in this direction? Or is, this a, is this something that could have been the future of animation if it kept going and kept refining it? Well, I think it reached its uh, mm. it reached its its pinnacle with Fire and Ice uh, in the mm. early '80s. Um, that and, was badass. That yeah. was a great movie. So, like, say say what you want. Like, you know, I, I I think it he he did a thing that not a lot of people had done. I think that's up to the viewer, honestly. I, I'm going I'm going but to say I'm bringing... going to say this as rotoscoping what he was doing. That's the precursor to motion capture. And what we what they're doing now, I mean, without all this rotoscoping animation, would we have like the motion capture ideas that led to Andy Serkis's career? <laughs> well, rotoscoping, he didn't pioneer rotoscoping, though. He, the, that was That's not what he says. 
Well, I don't know if he actually said that, but going like, but but Disney actually did a bunch of rotoscoping, mm-hmm. like in a lot of their their you know like go, going back into the what the 40s or I think was it Snow White one of anyway yeah, a number of the Disney right. features used rotoscoping in much the same way that Ralph actually did. So, I mean, it's definitely safe to call him a pioneer of sorts because he was trying adult animation and animation techniques that were interesting and new. So a, a pioneer of a kind, somebody has to be the first to stick their head above the parapet and try yeah. something new, even if they stumble at first. So I think it's safe to call him a pioneer, a crazy drugged up horny horny pioneer <laughs> well uh, i mean hey. yeah okay so speaking of horny yes wizards does have some problematic bits and but i mean really point me to any movie produced in the 70s that doesn't um and you know like yeah we've harshed on boomers a lot uh, for allowing their kids to consume media filled with um, what figurative buried razors uh, mm, kids they, these are the same guys who feared actual buried razors in our Halloween candy, but you know, go figure. Anyway, um, I think I this... remember hospitals offering to X-ray your candy for free mm-hmm. just to check for razors. Hey kids, let us know. You know, there's nothing candy. better. We, you know, we can't offer health care, but we can we can X-ray your candy. Uh, well, we have I mean, gone way off on a tangent. Yeah, here. well, but there's, something, there's something to that though. There's something to that that the that the to the boomer idea that whatever kids don't understand will just bounce off their brains, and if it, they did understand it, then that was a red flag, you know. And and as a case in point, my dad recorded my four-year-old self reading an explicit letter to his buddy, the underground comics artist S. Clay Wilson. Speaking of Zap Comics, he had me read a letter he had written to to Wilson into a cassette tape that he then sent to Wilson as a gag, and. I don't remember anything about it. I clearly recall that even then I didn't understand anything in it other than some of these are naughty words that I usually get in trouble for repeating. But um, anyway, that's an aside. But yeah, I can confirm that, yeah, like you, Zach, I watched Wizards probably a little early at age 10, and most of the adult stuff went way over my head, though Mm -hmm. I can admit that to my 10-year-old brain, Eleanor was interesting to me in a way that I couldn't (laughs) quite define in much the same way that Jessica Rabbit was also interesting to my 10 year old brain um though i can also say i didn't notice tower phallus until i watched it again for this conflict i was like man that is a dick (laughs) that is a fucking dick (laughs) okay (laughs) like i did not see that and i've seen this movie i don't know uh, at least 10 times um but the thing is that 10 year old me still got the key takeaways which were as we have said one fascism is always bad no matter whether it's a now 80 years ago 10 million years in the future it's bad don't do a fascism two fascism resurges periodically and it has to be fought back down whenever it does or really bad shit happens and you know that's actually very interesting that even back then he called it you know yeah fascism and hitler and all that shit will rear its head again well it was rearing its head in the 70s you know as there was like the anytime the economy economy turns bad and people start suffering then folks want to do a fascism that's you know fascism cannot exist without a certain level of background suffering and then this, uh, uh, this would have been around the age of Watergate, wouldn't it? When, yeah, this is the mid uh, when So filmmakers have learned, do not trust the government. It turns out they're yeah. actually bad guys sometimes. Yeah, so I think the worst thing that came out of Watergate was calling every scandal something gate. That's so, the worst thing? I uh-huh. fucking that's hate the thing it. That's worth- I mean, maybe the most pervasive. Well, the, maybe the not thing, the worst. It was pervasive. But yeah, this this they started production on this film in 1975. The Vietnam War had ended in a defeat for the United States, 
because we never should have been there in the first fucking place, but oh well. Um, but yeah, all the nasty, horrible shit with Kissinger and then all of the people who got up in arms at the end of that. Anyway, but like, but the number three point that I took away from this it was people are complicated and someone doesn't have to be perfect to be a good guy. The broad strokes are there. If they're against fascism, this is somebody you want on your side. Pro people are problematic. People are complicated. And you don't have to be perfect to be a good guy in that sense, at least. Of, you know, of, of like, you recognize fascism is bad, stop. Uh, okay. In the words of Douglas Adams, to summarize the summary, people yeah. are the problem. Yeah. This film has more of a vibe than an actual plot, and that's okay. Not every piece of visual art is done in photorealistic detail either. Like, cubism. You get the essence of a subject. Look at Marcel Duchamp's New Descending a Staircase. Bakshi, yeah, you know, we've given him a lot of criticism. He's taken a lot of criticism over the years for this film being, you know, a copy of underground comics and heavy metal and being derivative. But fucking find me a piece of art that isn't. <laughs> like, these days we get excited about references to our favorite pieces of media built into other media. You drop a Blues Brothers reference or a Star Wars reference into some completely unrelated TV series or movie and the audience shits its collective pants with joy. Yeah, it's, like, it's not like we do any of that on this podcast, though. Never, We're above no. that. No. It's like, it's nachos. It's food you eat with other food. Kevin Smith and <laughs> Quentin Tarantino both built careers on cinematic nachos. There's an artsy term for it, postmodern pastiche. Uh, so what you like about this film, once you've seen it, you're not going to forget about it. <laughs> that's no, true. No, it sticks in and your that, head. That's why it stays in the zeitgeist. Yes. So uh, actually, just a side note, when you mentioned about uh, uh, 20th Century Fox, uh, Star Wars and wizards are kind of like the brothers in this, right? Star Wars is, wizards is like the black wolf to Star Wars' avatar. They were both <laughs> in production at 20th Century Fox at the same time, both came out the same summer, and George Lucas hasn't taken anything like the kind of flack that Bakshi has taken over the years, despite Star Wars itself being a pastiche of Flash Gordon, Dune, and the Seven Samurai. And, you know, yes, he's taken yeah, some but criticism, but Bakshi gets shit on and Lucas doesn't. And, oh, and Lucas, oh, Lucas shit gets on shit on. He gets plenty. shit on, but what I mean is that, like, like to the. To but the, Lucas actually made somewhat of a narrative that made some small bit of sense. Are you kidding me? Watch the first Star Wars. It's an absolute <laughs> hash. I mean, we all love it, but the point, my, my point is that yes, he's taken shit, but Bakshi has taken a whole lot more shit. And and as yeah. also Wizards was never supposed to, was supposed to have been called War Wizards until Uncle Droid politely asked Ralph to alter the title so it wouldn't compete with Star Wars. And much like Star Wars, Wizards also had a major influence on media franchises that followed the, you know, maybe not quite as monolithically as Star Wars had. Heavy Metal as a movie probably wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for Wizards. Um, we mentioned that both the fantasy and sci-fi sides of Warhammer prob uh, probably wouldn't exist without Wizards. Gamma World, Fallout, all of that. And it, all of that draws heavily on Wizards as sort of the source material. And as we also mentioned, Ian Miller produced art for both Wizards and Warhammer. So anyway, as this film has contributed to Cinemania and the general media landscape, as well as on all the charges listed previously, I find this film guilty. And kids, if you're thinking of shitting on this film, maybe take it back, she. Uh... I see what you did there. I still don't get it. Look, it's a simple story. 
Boy meets girl meets world. World explodes, mutants rule the irradiated wasteland of what remains from the before times. Insane rules of quasi-monarchical succession process make girl hereditary she-president, queen of the radwaste. Robot shoots blob horse, elf stabs robot, girl complains, boy rebuilds robot with lobotomy, and everyone sets off to inevitable confrontation over the future of what the world once was. Elves attack everyone. Girl uses crotch lasers to attack elves. Boy does nothing about it, while other boy uses magical Hitler YouTube to radicalize morons. Everyone gets lost in the snow when tanks appear, and important plot events are referenced but never seen. Boy loses his mind, girl loses her mind, robot has no mind, and elf is an idiot. Everyone meets up in rotoscope warzone hell, armored knights attack, machine guns, inevitable long-winded battle scene, boy meets boy, and after a violent gun battle declares that pacifism is great and everything will be fine now, retires to shag girl, Hitler is dead again, everyone had a lovely day. It's all the same thing we've heard a million times before. If there aren't any further judgments to render, I declare this conclave adjourned. Where's my gavel? You, uh, left it back in the restricted room. God damn it. Fine. Conclave adjourned. Now that we're adjourned, I'm afraid I have more bad news. Oh, yeah, no that's a big force. Of course you do. Hey, I have this telegram, you see. How do you even have a smartphone, let alone a telegram account? Smartphone? What confounded newfanglery are you talking about? Never mind, give it here. Christ, who even uses telegrams anymore? Oh. Oh, that's who. Dear God. Give it here. <clears throat> Notice from the Central Committee, Geneva. Stop. Chapter charter revoked. Stop. Disband immediately or face consequences. Stop. Message ends. Stop. Consequences? What consequences could a bunch of movie nerds in Switzerland possibly inflict? The dreaded Cinemania kill team. You mean the dreaded Cinema Assassins? Ethan, you never told me about the kill team when you invited me to join. Well, yeah. Look, it's not that big a deal. We're just talking about a cadre of steely-eyed assassins conditioned by watching nothing but John Wick movies on constant repeat. I'm an academic. I've only trained to defend my dissertations. Here, you can have my fez back. Sorry, we glued it to your head. Kill team? Seriously? Oh, what did I get myself into? How do I leave? You, you don't. don't. Once you're in, you're in for life. Ride or die. Didn't didn't they just throw us out or something? Isn't that what revoked charter means? Oh, yes, but... Then, then how can we be in for life if we just got thrown out? We just can't watch movies or hold meetings or judge anything. You can't hold meetings? About movies or does teaching classes count? They were surprisingly unclear on that point. How will I make a living? Ugh, way to screw up my life forever. What? No. Fuck them. They don't get to tell me when I can't watch movies with my friends. Yeah, you tell yeah. them. Oh, that's yeah. right. No. Yeah. yeah. If you would call what we do watching movies with friends. But what about the kill team? Uh, the kill team's always just been a rumor anyway. Are we talking about a rumor in the heart? And if they're not a rumor, based on everything else I've seen about this organization, I'm not at all worried about their competence. Who's for going rogue? Aye! Aye. So the season one finale of the Cinemania Society was written, produced, and performed by Andrea Palladino, Andre Luke Martinez, 
Andy Slack, Zachariah Burks, Hope Bravo, Daniel Scribner, and Ethan Ireland. Featuring the voice talents of Georgia McKenzie and Chris Laird. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bad Audio. Dr. Benway Operates was excerpted from Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs, copyright 1959. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com. We'd like to hear what our listeners think, so if you have feedback about our show, suggestions for movies you'd like us to review in Season 2, just want to say hi or leave snarky comments, you can check out our social media feeds. We have a Facebook group. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And you can join our subreddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. If you really like what you heard, you can visit us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but maintaining a podcast sure isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Also, for our long-term listeners, we're sorry to have disappointed those who are holding out all year for some video content from us. We're getting there. Sooner or later, we'll get something visual out for you. We put out a show for you every week for the past year, and now we're going to take a well-earned break. We have a live show coming up, and then the Society will return for Season 2 sometime in 2023. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.